This episode is brought to you by the Metasearch Institute. What happens when patients' cases become too complex to solve in a typical 30-minute visit? Well, you've all had those super thick, super deep patient histories nobody's looked at in a long time and gone back through. Well, I'll tell you what happens is those patients bounce around from doc to doc without getting any answers or making any progress. These patients are trapped and lost in a maze. Well, Metasearch is here for those doctors and for those patients. Their motto is, we solve the unsolvable. Their process is rather simple. Dr. Trent Talbot, the founder, assigns a team of medical detectives, typically three MDs and one PhD, to each case. They research the latest breakthroughs and clinical trials, and they elicit the opinions of 10 to 15 world-leading experts per case. They purposefully seek out experts who will come at each case from a different perspective, the Bainesian method. Altogether, they will put in over 250 MD hours for every case. That means 500 times the amount of brain power that a typical doctor can afford to offer. Nobody can do what Metasearch does. Call 832-968-6667. That's 832-968-6667 to be in touch. You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. It was 101 years ago when we lost my great-grandfather to the Spanish flu, our last great pandemic. Samuel Barshop made those little wooden desks that you can barely fit in with his brothers in the Flatiron Building in Manhattan. And the couple also lost their infant Dorothy to the Spanish flu at the same time they lost the father, the chief breadwinner. So in 1918, this forced my grandfather, Papa Joe, to be the breadwinner at age 14 for an immigrant family of five in the heart of New York City. He worked in accounting and ladies ready to wear, and eventually he sold produce to the South Texas grocers like HUB and Piggly Wiggly. And he formed the first Texas condo association in the state in 1952, it's called Produce Terminal. And he and other vendors could now sell from not only a central depot that they all shared, but it had refrigeration down below in all their locations and it had docks uh, for loading and rail loading as well. And they could trade with each other to fill orders for customers. It beat selling from the booth at what was now known as El Mercado, which is also, if you're not a local in San Antonio, known as the historic market square. But maybe you've enjoyed a Tex-Mex dinner there at La Margarita or Mi Tierra restaurant, which are two of the most profitable restaurants in the state of Texas. My Papa Joe, my grandfather, he knew the pandemic life and it formed him and I feel deeply connected across a century to my grandfather. Our guest today, Michael Okenula, was the founding chief innovation officer for the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, the VA. It's the largest civilian federal agency with $250 billion budget and almost 400,000 employees at over 1,000 centers. And he was responsible for leading and transforming and scaling enterprise innovation at the department for the first time. His efforts were as a principal lead of the VA Innovation Center known as the VIC and served in that capacity from March 2018 till late this year. 
Michael is the founder and managing principal today of the Maximizer Group, which is an independent advisory firm primarily advising corporations, investors, and startups. He's a healthcare futurist, a collaborative leader, a product and growth expert, and he's focused on investing in a future where everybody wins, something you get if you listen to this show. Before the VA, his most recent full-time role was serving as director of venture development for a $2 billion asset fund that distributed $125 million in investments yearly. And he, in the healthcare industry, has advised such a wide swath of people that it's just such a long list, but it's health systems and physician groups and academic medical centers and big healthcare, big plans, big pharma, PBMs, and even a Medicaid agency. Um, and he's managed physician practices. He got his master's in business at Stanford, and he graduated magna cum laude at his undergrad university. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron, and uh, thank you for that very detailed overview. Appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Michael, I don't really know how we're going to get this done in half an hour, because when we talk, we go way past a half hour, because there's so (laughs) many interesting topics. But let's try to narrow this to two subjects, and I think the first one is the VA is probably the best precursor to what a single-payer system will look like because it is exactly that in our economy, and it's a big one. And the second thing I want to talk about is what I opened the show with, which is how COVID has changed the patient experience forever, the doctor experience forever, the hospital system experience forever. What are the big changes we can see? Because you have this massive 20,000-foot view with your background. you want to tackle those two subjects with me today? Yeah, absolutely. Those are very weighty subjects, and I'm sure we won't get in trouble at all talking about them. Oh, well, the VA is so easy to poke holes in because it's so big and there's, you know, it's so hard for them to recruit doctors to compete with the commercial industry, isn't it? I think the, the situation um, is very, very complicated. And the challenge is one of incentives being one part of it, right? So if you're not able to pay uh, physicians, at the same rate as folks in the private sector can pay, you're ultimately asking folks to make that type of financial sacrifice uh, to come into work within the VA system. And so that makes, in some instances, recruiting very challenging. Um, And that's been a well-known problem, and Congress has taken a lot of actions recently trying to sweeten the incentive package. Uh, So everything from, you know, loan forgiveness to doing everything they can to raise the cap on, on compensation. And, you know, ultimately the VA has to compete and it has to compete in markets with where other health systems are still struggling uh, to recruit certain types of specialties into those markets. Uh, the, the challenge the VA faces is, you know, a challenge of any system that's trying to run across the entire country um, without the ability to sort of build enough of a density uh, that would justify the traditional economics of a business. Um, if you look at a system like Kaiser, right, everyone wants to kind of hold up Kaiser. You know, Kaiser gets to pick where it wants to play and sort of build a delivery system accordingly. Uh, the mission of the VA is one where, you know, we help the veterans where they are. And veterans are in all 50 states, and you know, veterans are also in countries overseas. And so the VA's mission is to meet the needs of the veterans where they are. Um, and that is a global mission at this point. Um, and then, obviously, we can delve into COVID or just keep pulling, pulling layers on this one. So I'll, I'll leave that to you as to where we go. 
Well, we can pull for more way past our half hour, but uh, a friend of mine, I had dinner with a friend of mine who's married to a VA physician. She said it took about six months from someone from the moment they had chest pain and in, or some type of angina to actually getting a cardiologist visit because of the just the incredible shortage of specialists there. And, you know, six months is an eternity when you have angina uh, and it can lead to all kinds of other problems, which she had to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had not you know, uh, anxiety. And, you know, it, it was beyond cumbersome. And she's really, along with a lot of her other primary care doctors, thinking about leaving the VA because she can't, uh, that's not good care. She doesn't feel like she's doing a good job. So, you know, I think on a case by case basis, and without knowing the details, it's really challenging for me to kind of weigh in on, on that specific case. But access to care is definitely a significant priority and working through all of the processes that allow the appropriate care path to be set up and for the patient to be connected to that, I think has been a work in progress. Um, and it's not unique to the VA, I don't think. Um, just, you know, we all have our challenges accessing the right levels of care. And so to that degree, um, the recommendation is, you know, in as much as they can, they should reach out and work with their patient-aligned care teams and, and figure out how to accelerate that progression to either a cardiologist within the VA or a cardiologist in the community care network, um, because those are all assets um, and capabilities that any veteran in the system would have access to. So a happy story is um, I took a Bible class with a gentleman who was a bomber pilot from World War II. And he had nothing but stellar things to say about the VA um, for 60 years. He lived in 93, died a year or two ago, but he was a sweet guy. He was also a super educated health consumer because he was a VP at the Methodist in Houston. So he really knew his stuff when he was going to talk to the doctors and knew all the games and how to get around those problems. But um, he told me something interesting. He said that there's sort of two VAs. There's if you're combat, meaning, you know, you pulled a trigger or fired a rifle or were on the front, or flew an airplane in his case, you got one level of care. But if you were a desk jockey, <laughs> you didn't always get the same level of care. Those guys had a little bit less of a red carpet. Is that, I mean, that was his experience. I don't know if that's true or not. And again, it's maybe unfair to even ask this question. No, nah, hey, I, uh, I think any question's fair. You know, it's fair game. What I will say is that would be news to me. Um, I think every veteran is treated with the utmost respect. Um, there is no signal, at least that I've seen, that indicates one's combat versus not. Um, and so I would assume that unless uh, the anecdotal case you referenced, if there's like enough evidence that would, that would indicate that combat versus non-combat was the filter for how someone got treated versus someone encountering someone that maybe not, wasn't having their best day. Um, so that's how I would look at it versus saying there's like a separate access point or separate set of experiences for one type of veteran versus the other. Um, you know, that has not been my experience. I can tell you, I've not seen any type of guidance on that. So I would, I would find that very, very strange if it were a thing. Um, but I personally would not be able to, uh, you know, indicate that that was a thing because it definitely wasn't not from my perspective. 
So, so let's talk about your role as chief innovation officer. You had a budget and you were allowed to tackle some problems. Let's just like take a look at the suicide problem. That the only group in America that has more suicides on a per capita basis are physicians, particularly primary care physicians. They have a higher suicide rate than veterans, but we're losing what several hundred veterans a day. We lose one an hour. Is that what? Is that something like that? You told me a number. No, 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 no. The number is. Uh, which any number is too high, um, but it's 17 uh, veterans uh, out of the latest reports uh, that were issued um, commit suicide every day. Out of that number, only about a third actually have interactions with the VA. And so we are in a, a crisis on that regard um, because we're just not in a position at this point for a variety of reasons. Um, to have those tangible touch points with every single veteran. And the suicide statistics kind of bear it out in that, you know, A, the number 17. B, majority of those folks who go through that ultimate process of self-harm uh, that leads to death, um, majority of them are not in contact with or engaging the VA. And so opportunities exist across the board to improve on that. Um, but the number is um, 17 veterans. Uh, the, you've heard, you may have heard 20, but that includes reservists and active duty. But when we just drill down to, to the veteran population, it's 17. Let's talk about your accomplishments as Chief Innovation Officer. I'm sure you had many that you're proud of and many frustrations that you wish you could have had more budget to deal with. What, what are some things that you felt um, you were able to achieve in your tenure there as the first officer? Sure. Um, and the biggest piece of it, so the Mission Act uh, passed in 2018, and uh, with its passage, it created the Center for Innovation for Care and Payment, which in its mission, it's truly looking at how we move the enterprise towards value-based payment. And so the process of establishing the center, so a lot of regul regulations working through the agency, working with OMB, Getting that passed and established uh, was definitely a big accomplishment and definitely didn't do any of that alone. Uh, it took a whole agency effort to get us to that point. Uh, so two-stage rulemaking process ultimately put the center and its operating uh, regulations kind of in the books as a permanent fixture. The other part that was very uh, rewarding was that there were waiver authorities included in that, that uh, center. And in order to keep those waiver authorities on a permanent basis, we had to get our first proposal submitted uh, to Congress uh, basically 18 months after the law was signed. And so that gave us from June 6 of 2018 uh, to basically December 6 of 2019. And we got it done. Uh, we got our proposal in uh, Congress, I'd say miraculously passed it, uh, and the president signed it into law March 3rd. And so for me, those were just some pretty monumental things to set something like that up um, and have those assets available uh, to the agency for decades to come. And what is the primary mission? So the primary mission is really around uh, transforming the agency towards a more value-oriented um, enterprise around, uh, I'd say, 
do more for veterans and taxpayers. And by doing more for veterans, that's giving higher quality care. By doing more for taxpayers, that's doing it at a lower cost. Um, and so the goal is to create a more sustainable VA uh, that helps more veterans. Um, that's the you know, tricky needle to thread uh, because ultimately uh, most, most enterprises, I'd say VA included, when we do more, usually need a bigger budget. And so the budgets have grown as we've continued to do more. Um, I think ideal scenario would be looking at ways to doing more without a, you know, exponential growth in budget uh, because it really gets to sustainability. Um, and if you kind of look at how other agency funding has gone, you've really seen a lot of agencies get clamped down on uh, from a budgetary standpoint. And uh, I think some stuff like that will continue. Um, and so the opportunity to just look at how to continue to meet the mission um, while funding other priorities um, is going to be the, the best way to think about a more comprehensive future for the VA or any agency that's more value oriented. It's really about doing more um, with as much resources as you had today or potentially less, right? And it ties right into where healthcare overall needs to go um, because healthcare, it costs too much. It's too big a share of our GDP. Um, and it doesn't do well for, I'd say, overall American prosperity uh, because it makes us less competitive if we spend that much on healthcare. It's baked into everything we make domestically. Um, and then we can talk about this forever, but uh, that, that's the, the, the gist around the primary mission of, of the center. So I know you believe in Medicare for all or a, <laughs> called Let's not call it. No, Medicare no, 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 no. Don't, don't, oh. don't attribute that to me. I, I, okay. I wouldn't say there's any policy out there uh, that, that I would fully embrace at this point. I think you, everything, you can poke holes in everything. Right. Do you think that, um, so by the time this airs, we'll have probably a new president likely and maybe even a new Senate. And is there a possibility that, using the VA as sort of a counterpunch is a good example of what not to do. In other words, there's a lot of things we can do to improve the VA, but can any giant bureaucracy truly run healthcare as a federal, federally funded, federally run program? I think the model matters. Um, and I don't know that I could definitively say yes or no. Um, and the challenge is, you know, having been someone who's kind of worked across healthcare. I, it kind of comes down to trust and motive. And, you know, a for-profit enterprise is designed to profit. And in as much as, which is kind of the reason why healthcare is so regulated. Um, it's because if left to its own devices, I think with people's lives in the balance, a lot of bad things could happen. Um, I think we saw some of that, which is why things had to be put in place around pre-existing conditions. I, I don't look at any of this with, with uh, any naivete, right? Um, it's complicated. I don't know that I have the answer. And I don't know that I would rule out the role of a bureaucracy in managing the payment of or delivery of healthcare, even if it's just as a, a counterbalance to the forces of capitalism being unrestrained. Um, because that, that in as much as I'm a free market capitalist type of person, 
I still have some caution in just kind of not having, I'd call it the federal bureaucracy involved in healthcare for good or bad. Because uh, if nothing else, it slows things down so that things can be thought through properly um, versus just, you know, no holds barred, healthcare kind of doing its own thing. So that that's where I'd land. It's, I, I don't you know, know, I know enough to... Right. I don't know enough to be definitive one way or the other. I understand you and I share that we look, we love healthcare where everybody wins a future where everybody wins. And let's take the patient's perspective and how COVID-19 has forever changed the patient experience. What is your, you know, two minute overview on how patients are never going to be the same again after this C-19? I think in a lot of different ways. Um, I think there is probably a lot more comfort with virtual engagement with care uh, that may not have existed prior to COVID. And that's just been, you know, both providers and patients have kind of been forced towards that. So I'd say there's probably greater comfort with virtual experiences related to healthcare. And I think we're just scratching the surface on what that could be. I think the other piece is really thinking through how patients might have been Initially dependent, I think, on always engaging their provider and particularly always engaging their provider inside of their office as the best way to work through issues or figure things out. And they might in this period have gotten a little bit more comfortable uh, with either just letting certain aches and pains go or potentially just working through other means to get answers. Um, and I think fundamentally those two things will change some of the utilization patterns that have been seen historically. Um, and I think it also changes some of the access points um, because if you now have a patient population that's more comfortable with digital experiences around healthcare, um, and then you have a population of folks who are not going to the ER or urgent care because of every little thing, um, that, that could help with uh, utilization over time. And that could also uh, just help with how virtual care scales. Um, and those are things that would not have happened, I don't think, without the push from COVID. Yeah, here's what we do know is out of about roughly 450 million patient visits in primary care clinics, 85% of them are obviated by, uh, by virtual care. In other words, you can get them handled by phone, by secure text, by uh, a FaceTime type um, HIPAA compliant application. So that's right on point. Let's take the doctor's perspective now. What has changed forever if you're a primary care physician with C-19 in your bag of tricks now? <laughs> so for those that survived, I'm assuming most that you're referencing are fee-for-service. So most that survived some of that volatility and in income, um, I think they should, if they haven't already, uh, start thinking through how they diversify uh, some of their revenue sources and how they really start thinking through some of the solution sets that are out there to help with diversification. Um, otherwise, they're kind of setting themselves up for the next shock to not be prepared for that. Yeah, and yeah, we've had a lot of value-based care organizations, Catalyst in Dallas, Chris Crow, we've had Clive Fields, he has Village MD, and we just had Chen Med, who's a full risk carrier. And I'm sort of a fan of the full risk carrier because their incentives are all in the right place. Um, they are taking all the risk, but they're also getting all the reward if they get those particularly chronic patients down to uh, manageable levels. Um, okay, so now we talk about the doctors. Let's talk about the perspective of 
um, costs. Are costs going to go down with more virtual care visits? Are costs going to go down now with um, less utilization? Depends on the market. Um, I look at it this way. Cost is a function of two things. How much, how much something is priced at and how much of uh, that thing gets used. And so when you look at total cost, you need to factor in the power of the market players to change the price. Even if you're in a scenario where the utilization is going down, what power do the players have to change the price? And so in as much as price can be changed, costs may or may not go down. Um, and actually in a lot of markets that are increasingly consolidated, some of the players have the ability to change the prices. Well, yeah, we know that in every metro in America, there is a hospital or two that has monopoly po pricing power, maybe not monopoly control, but pricing power. We know that in every state, there's one or two insurance companies that have monopoly pricing power, again, maybe not monopoly control. And uh, with Medicare Advantage, there's companies like Humana who are deeply involved with that that have pricing control in there as well. Um, third, fourth category, let's talk about what changes forever if you're an employer because it seems to me that more employers are now going direct contracting. They're going reference-based pricing. They're going, they're skipping the middleman. What do you think the employer is going to get out of this C-19 pandemic uh, with a long range? That, that is a group that I think holds more weight than I think they give themselves credit for um, because they hold the dollars and they could decide like others uh, to kind of go the self-insured route or self-pay route, but depending on size, um, they might just be stuck, uh, you know, going with what the market offers versus being in a position to make any material change. So that's one piece. Um, I think the other piece is employers could, you know, decide to be innovative if they have enough density in one particular area. Um, and they could also decide to do things like just develop relationships with virtual primary care providers that defray or control how the rest of their network um, gets used. Um, and that's just off the top of my head. But I think employers could really take a hard look at how they've historically uh, gone about the business of providing health benefits to their employees um, and actually shake things up a little bit because I think they have the power to do that. I think the other piece is kind of going back to policy land. If if the public option becomes a real thing, then that's something employers could just ask their employees to go for. Now, I don't know that they'll do that because uh, part of the, the give and take of employer benefits is it does create that, I don't wanna call it golden handcuffs because it's not a golden handcuff, but it does create that weight of sorts between the employer and the employee when the employee knows that their health care, which is their network of providers, the providers they have a history with, is connected to their employment. And I think employers also enjoy uh, being in that position. And so in as much as an employer is willing to let go of that uh, weight, if you will, and allow their employees to have other sources of health care, then we could be looking at a whole new future where uh, your source of healthcare is not your employer and is not connected to your employment. And that could be very liberating, I think, for a lot of Americans or people in general. Um, and I just don't know that employers would be interested 
in in not having that uh, in their toolkit, if you will. Um, and that's part of the reason why healthcare is so complicated and quote unquote fixing healthcare is so hard uh, because there are all these relationships and codependencies on the current complexity that just trying to address one thing without looking at the whole uh, just doesn't really get anywhere because there's just there's so much we don't know. There's so much below the surface. A couple of quick numbers I'll give you from guests from this show. Medici, an Austin-based firm run by Clinton Phillips, 13 million uh, members, virtual primary care. Uh, they serve about a third of the Fortune 100, certainly not all their employees, but 13 million is a pretty decent number. Um, we have Crossover Health, with over a million members taken care of in virtual primary care and on-site clinics at the mostly technology headquarters and uh, fulfillment centers for Amazon. Three million members of 98.6. Um, so that's Robbie Cape. Um, we've had Brad Youngren, the chief medical officer on the show. That's 15 million right there. And then, um, pardon me, Walmart is now using centers of excellence. So they're doing more direct contracting with their 2 million partners. There is a small movement, but a movement yet nonetheless of thought leaders of employers that are making these switchovers. So dang it, we've run out of time. <laughs> There's so much more to talk about with Michael Kenyula. And um, we, we're going to do another show, Michael. There's no way we're going to let you off with this lousy half hour, buddy. I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, you're way too interesting and too, you have too much of an overview for us to uh, let this go. But we do have to let people know how are they going to find you if they want to reach you. So if uh, folks want to reach me, easiest way is through my website. Uh, so it's themaximizergroup.com. And that allows you to kind of see a couple of things I'm working on. And also easiest way to just uh, contact information is shoot me an email. Uh, to set, set up time to talk or just kind of go through uh, whatever it is they want to do outreach around. Okay. And I love to ask the question, as you know, at the end, you can answer it without me asking it even. What banner message would you fly overhead if you could give something to all Americans? Think big, but act practically. All right. I can't wait to uh, do this again. Thanks again for your time, Michael. This goes too fast with smart people like you. Uh, but we look forward to bringing you back and uh, I wish you to be safe and smart. And uh, I don't need to, I don't uh, need to worry about that either case with you. Likewise. Okay. You take care. All right. Take care. So welcome to just a hospital minute. We are adding these segments for one minute at the end of every show to tell you some of the games that hospitals play. Patient portals can often be worthless. One of my dear friends who was a CEO of multiple companies recently asked for x-rays for a major system we've all heard of and other reads to be sent to his family doc. What came through week after week were black images. Patient portals can be worthless. So this is just another hospital minute. Thanks again to our sponsor, the MediSearch Institute. I want to read you a note a CEO friend of mine sent me who used them for a rare childhood disease her daughter had. Dr. Talbot's research was thorough. He provided clear paths of treatment and he gave me access to the best physicians. I'm so grateful for his work. That's the MediSearch Institute. Thank you for listening. You wanna shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. 
Until next episode.